This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley, independent commentary with a California perspective featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 12, Episode 17, My CIA Career, talking to Douglas London about his book, The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. With us today is Doug London, a retired, decorated, 34-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's clandestine service. His experience includes assignment as CIA Chief of Station and the President's Senior Intelligence Representative. He served extensively in the Middle East, Africa, South, and Central Asia. His CIA subject matter expertise includes Iran, counterterrorism, and weapons of mass destruction. His work overseas involved spotting and identifying targets, building relationships with them, and pitching them to work for the CIA. At the same time, he had to retain cover identities with a daytime job and, of course, a real-life role as a husband and dad. He shares with us the complicated relationships he built with the agents, which he recruited, and his CIA colleagues. Today, he's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies and a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute. He joins us today from his office in McLean, Virginia. Hi, Doug, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me on your program today. My pleasure. And Doug, could you take a few moments and tell our listeners about your background and your biography? Sure. I was uh, born an inner city kid in the Bronx in New York City. My first venture beyond New York City's borders was actually when I enlisted in the Marine Corps, which was my effort to leave college for a while, which I thought was boring. And 12 weeks at Paris Island convinced me that college was a pretty good deal after all. <laughs> so I went back to school, pursued uh, political science and international relations, which for someone who really never left New York City much, except for the, the beauty of Camp Lejeune and Paris Island, that's, that's where I aimed. I fortuitously found my way actually into the sites of the CIA. I was actually aiming to be a foreign service officer to join our diplomatic service, but the agency found me, which is more how things worked that way. I was launched in a wonderful career, as you said, of over 34 years. I have five fabulous children who I love and have all uh, left a nest and are doing wonderful things. And my career gave me a great deal of satisfaction in what I would like to ideally believe advanced the security and protection of America and, and its people. And uh, from a very selfish way, allowed me to see the world, meet a lot of amazing people, and do a lot of pretty cool things in the process. Mm -hmm. Well, Doug, your book, The Recruiter, reads like a very well-crafted memoir. But you say that your goal in writing the book was to start a conversation. What did you mean by that? You know, it's so funny you say that, Jim, because uh, when I when I first wrote this and actually started to engage publishers and agents, they kept talking about, well, this is a memoir, this is a memoir. And I was like, no, it's not a memoir. And they said, of course it is. You're, you're talking about your life. But my goal really was to promote a conversation. I just finished 34 plus years in my job and I was retiring. And I'm sure most folks who retire, particularly after being at the same place, have a lot to process, you know, in this transition to a new life. And it's a little bit of processing 
34 years of espionage mm-hmm. and, and where that has taken you. And particularly towards the, the latter few years of my career, there were you know, increasing increasing amount of political pressures and challenges that faced the agency and faced me personally, and it was time for me to go. But as I left and I started that reflective process, I was inspired to write, writing something I've always enjoyed doing even before the agency and one I wanted to do. But my initial instinct was to write a, a, a novel, something in fiction. I thought it might be best to convey the issues I wanted to bring light to by doing it in a fictional format. But I found myself writing about anecdotes, and, and the anecdotes seemed a much more effective backdrop for the conversation I was trying to promote on issues I think the agency needs to address where it today is at a crossroads in terms of accountability and leadership and diversity and being able to pivot to what we now call randomly great power or strategic competition and all that goes along with it. Of course, that that does come across loud and clear in the book. As I was reading through the book, of course, your career, your 34 years, was punctuated almost to the day by 9-11. There was 17 years of service up to and including 9-11, and then 17 years of service post 9-11. Could you give us a sense of how that how the 9-11 event was a, it was not only a watershed in American history, but was it a watershed in terms of American intelligence operations, and, and specifically in terms of how the CIA's mandate unfolded after 9-11 versus how it was before 9-11? It was almost as if I had worked for two agencies in that rather symmetrical 17 years on one side and 17 years on the other. And it wasn't just the targets and the issues. So the first half of my career was dominated more by the Cold War. Uh, The second half by the war on terrorism. Uh, The United States just coming out of that after 20 years, if we define leaving Afghanistan as sort of that that border, that threshold for it. The difference was more the ethos of the organization, the engagement of our mission in terms of what we prioritized and how we pursued it. The agency I joined was an elite spy service. That's how it saw itself. Its mission primarily, while chartered, by the 1947 National Security Act, not to get too professorial on y'all, gave the agency charge for the collection of foreign intelligence, doing analysis, expert analysis, and covert action. It was the agency that had the authorities to conduct covert action for the United States government, being essentially deniable things you do. So when you look historically at, you know, whether it's overthrowing governments or aiding insurgents or whatever, it's things that the United States has done, which it believed in its security interests, but it had to do covertly with the ability to say, ah, that wasn't us. That's why we didn't send in the special forces. That's why we send in the CIA, that sort of thing. Post 9-11, you have this earth-altering occurrence where the United States has been attacked on its homeland the first time since Pearl Harbor, really. Mm-hmm. And, and there was shock. I mean, I was overseas at this time. And I was shocked because who could have imagined watching the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers go down or the Pentagon in flames or another aircraft that likely headed for the Capitol, if not if not the White House. 
the agency found itself in a in a spot where it actually believed it faced an existential threat. If you read the 9-11 Commission Report and various other literature, the agency did a lot of things right in foreseeing the threat from al-Qaeda, predating what's famously noted the, the August presidential daily brief that bin Laden's determined to strike the homeland. It had been ringing the bells for quite some time, but what it did poorly was share, share with others. So information the agency had because of its own views on compartmentation on and sadly some of that interagency rivalry that occurs in Washington DC didn't share information that that might have made a difference. So agency leaders thought we may be going down. The Secretary of Defense, Donald Roosevelt, had never been much of a fan of the agency and was less so, particularly after, in his words, we beat him to Afghanistan in terms of having boots on the ground, which the agency did 15 year, fifteen days mm. after the event of 9-11. So the agency looked for survival and how best it could survive. And it looked in terms of what made it unique that it could market. And I know marketing's a, a poor word, perhaps, but marketing is what it was. And that was covert action and special authorities. And also its abilities as a rather small organization. Compared to a lot of U.S. agencies, I, I don't think the American public realizes quite how small CIA is, and, and especially the clandestine arm of it. Those people like me who go out and spy, who go overseas and recruit meat handle agents or deal with covert activities, with insurgencies, with what have you, is actually rather small. It makes for a rather agile, adaptive, and mobile organization, which moves pretty quickly in its ability to realign resources and to be innovative and to have a, a, a somewhat flat management system that allows us to be creative and, and move quickly on, on issues. But unfortunately, what my senior colleagues at the time divined to do was to invest in what would assist the White House from a political point of view. And those were there were political issues related to CT, which obviously not being attacked again, mm -hmm. uh, because that would be devastating. But also what to do about Al Qaeda, which after our deployments and troops in Afghanistan had largely gone into Pakistan, a sovereign country what to do with all these prisoners, these detainees who might have information on upcoming terrorist operations or were involved in, in attacks against the United States, who the FBI couldn't prosecute because they didn't have sufficient evidence for criminal charges, and the military was not allowed to hold as prisoners of war because these weren't people in uniform, parts of sovereign state. These were people, members of a transnational group. Mm -hmm. you know? So... The agency, being innovative, being creative, came up with some solutions which in the long run might not have necessarily served best the long-term interest of the public nor the agency itself. And mm. that was lawfully, it was lawful, lethal targeting and kinetic activity under covert operations and detaining prisoners at what your listeners will, will recall were called black sites. Right where, uh, unfortunately, the agency engaged in a program which they call enhanced interrogation, which, but which was essentially torture, waterboarding, and, and, and the like, which were real blemishes on the agency. Mm -hmm. And apart from that, the consequences in terms of the agency's mission and credibility came the second and third order consequences where we weren't as focused on foreign intelligence collection anymore. We weren't mm -hmm. focused on tradecraft on the technology that advances or preempts espionage. 
we see the amazing gains in cyber and biometrics and telephone tracking. Everybody's got a beacon on them when they're carrying their phone or their smartwatch or whatever. And our adversaries invested heavily in that and, and became much more capable, particularly from a counterintelligence ability against us. And we were not where we needed to be. Mm-hmm. We also advanced careers of people really invested in the covert action side, the kinetic side, the counterterrorism side, as opposed to giving the workforce that broader foreign intelligence experience. So now we find ourselves pivoting to great power competition and strategic competition, which requires more of that classic espionage with with a lot of folks who spent their careers doing other things now in positions of leadership. So. All of those were issues along with the fact that I believe the agency hadn't been hiring the right people always over the years. We really didn't have a workforce that reflected America in terms of ethnicity and color and gender. And it's not just because I'm, I do believe it's the right thing to do on a, for all sorts of reasons, but even as a spy, I'm, I'm an old white guy now. And, and who's going to have who's going to have better luck running around the streets of the Middle East, Africa, South Asia, Asia, than folks who reflect those cultures, who know the history, who know the language? I mean, they taught me languages and rolled me out, yes. and I was effective. But I'd have to think some folks in our great diverse country would be even more effective. Even more effective, Doug. Let's come back to to the basic information which feeds into intelligence, the raw intelligence. In your book, you outlined six uh, six intelligence areas that are part of the, as raw intelligence comes in, I guess you can uh, slice it and dice it and put it into one of these six categories. One is signals intelligence, another is image intelligence, a third is measurement and signals intelligent, there's uh, number four is open source intelligence, Number five is geo-intelligence. And number six is human intelligence. And when I think of spycraft, when I think of tradecraft, and maybe for the benefit of our listeners, if you would just distinguish, is there a difference between tradecraft and spycraft? But before you do that, coming back to the human intelligence, when I think of an elite spy organization, I think of a spy going out there and actually talking to another individual of the opposing country who has information that he can share with us that we don't have. And that's, that's human intelligence. And talk to me about human intelligence, because it sounds as though, you know, with, with cyber and satellites and images and all the rest of it, you know, all of that was meant to enhance human intelligence. Have we forgotten the importance of human intelligence in our elite spy service, the CIA? My experience has been folks have lost confidence in clandestinely acquired human intelligence. And to some degree, because of all the great gadgets and technology that's available and and not to deprecate it because it's incredibly valuable. The reality is that human is a big bucket. It's not just the stones. It's not just stealing secrets. It's our diplomats abroad. It's our treasury officials, our open contacts with other governments, our Mm -hmm. membership in international organizations. Most of human intelligence is not secret. It comes through these contacts and and, and open engagements and exchange. What the CIA does and, and a couple of other agencies in the United States intelligence community 
it steals secrets by clandestinely acquiring mm-hmm. intelligence by, as you stated correctly and appropriately, recruiting spies, moles, penetrations, people on the inside who are going to provide us the secrets of their country, of their group, of sometimes their very own family in some of these organizations. That was always sort of that, you know, human intelligence, as I talk about, is probably the second notice profession. Uh-huh. Uh, and maybe less ethical than the first one some people could, could contend. But as technology gave us satellites and we have drones and we have amazing uh, listening devices and, and the like, along the end, she said, folks began to sort of invest greater in that and have greater confidence because it was tangible. They could feel it. They could hear it. They could see it. But the problem with all that is all those amazing resources and even open source, which is the wave of the future because there's just so much available through open source. Mm-hmm. And there's the, the tools that artificial intelligence give us to look for trends and patterns and such, which people can't do. The UMI can't move that fast. But all of that tells you what has happened right. and maybe what is on the ground. It doesn't tell you what people are going to do. So we find ourselves now watching Ukraine, right. and we could see the tanks and the troops and everything else, and we hear the Putin's comments and the saber rattling, but it would take a spy to tell you what Putin's really thinking. When the United States targeted and killed the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force commander, Qasem Soleimani, in January of 2020 with our drones over Iraq, the Iranians eventually retaliated in what we saw from satellites were there ballistic missiles on the launch pads. We didn't know where they were going, and we didn't know how they were going to use them. As it turned out, the Iranians fired those missiles at our bases and somehow managed to miss everything. Wow. Um, And I don't want to make light of it because the impacts, the concussions alone cause a number of traumatic brain injury cases of our soldiers there, so I don't want to short shrift that. But the Iranians clearly pulled their punches because they didn't want to escalate. Only a spy could have told us that. Mm. So I, I think we got away a bit from it because we have these fabulous tools and growing skepticism about spying. President Trump, while he was in office, openly disparaged uh, clandestine espionage. He, he thought, uh, you know, why do you want to believe somebody who sought their own country was his remark. Mm. So I, I people diverted attention and with that diverted resources into a number of these other ints which underinvested in human t- and and the tradecraft and just to to finally touch on that tradecraft and spycraft they're used interchangeably the tradecraft is used more broadly as sort of ttps what are the techniques that one uses so what is the tradecraft of an imagery analyst or a signals intelligence analyst when we talk about spycraft we talk about this is what you do on the street mm-hmm. this is how you you know clandestinely which means nobody sees it recruit agents and handle them in a way to collect their intelligence that protects them and and the information. Now, let's come back to the many assignments that you had in your 34 years with the CIA involved identification and recruitment of agents in numerous countries. We'll just leave it at that in numerous different (laughs) countries. Walk us through, there are a couple of great examples in the book that you give. Walk us through a couple of those examples of how you identify that target, how you make the first contact, how you get to a point of confidence with that conf- 
with that contact to be able to ask the critical question, would you consider working for the CIA? And if so, here are the conditions. Walk us through a couple of the examples that you gave in the book, Doug, because I think for our listeners, that's that's fascinating to know, to, to hear directly from a CIA case officer like yourself who actually did that. And it sounds as though the CIA needs more of that on a go-forward basis. So agents are the lifeblood of an intelligence service. And just for your listeners, for context, CIA officers, the case officers, the people who recruit and handle these agents, we consider ourselves officers. So like the FBI, special agents, CIA operators are case officers, operations officers. The people we recruit, the the military officers in, in Russia's Air Force, the you know, the Iranian intelligence officers, those are agents. Those are our agents who, mm-hmm. who report to us. So to go out and get agents, you gotta find them, don't you? And there's two principal ways of doing that. It's one and the best is target analysis, trying to identify those in institutions that have the answers to the questions you're solving. Because we don't spy just for the fun of it, though I'll confess it's a lot of fun. <laughs> but we uh, we spy to answer questions. We spy to answer questions from our decision makers, our policy makers, the president, and to inform their decision making on what we're going to do and where we might be vulnerable or where, contrarily, there might be opportunities for the United States. So we try to identify the where of these institutions that hold this knowledge and then the who of those in these places, in these institutions, in the military, in terrorist groups, in foreign government organizations, scientists, what have you, across the span of requirements that we face to answer for for our decision makers. And we try as we can through using existing intelligence, existing agents, social media, open source, everything, all the six ints you mentioned, to try to find people that not only have the access but we believe just from indirectly looking at them might be receptive to an approach. We know Mm -hmm. something about their life. They've got a sick kid. They've been a dissident. They've gotten in trouble in the past. They're an ideologue, whatever that may be. And then try to find a means from what we can discern from studying them indirectly to throw somebody like me across their trail, to bump them, to come across them, to sort of, if you would, do a bait and switch, to meet them under circumstances that appear innocent, but then by getting to know them, try to, to be fair, manipulate them into a clandestine relationship. The other way to do it is by spending a lot of time where you might find your targets. So you need boots on the ground one way or another. And yes, we can recruit people indirectly, remotely, and the internet's an amazing thing, but it has its vulnerabilities and its foibles, and nothing replaces being up close and personal with somebody to, to have that personal relationship that allows you a profound insight and trust that disarms them and penetrates really who they are so that you work your way towards a father confessor sort of relationship Mm -hmm. to the point they're willing to take risks which are to them and their family and even generations of their family lethal so we try to go where we think they might be i you know that includes trolling events and activities and such like that because particularly today in today's technical world where cell phones computers 
you know, as an instructor at the farm, I used to refer to the phones and computers as the devil because mm-hmm. they're a living, enduring record of contact between people as well as the means of tracking. So you try to find ways that there's not going to be a record of contact where, and I'll, you know, I'll tell you, it's, it's everything. It's from working your kids' school events where there's international schools, mm-hmm. and diplomats and host government elites, mm-hmm. to sporting events, to cultural events, to shopping I mean, everything where you are out there on the street and getting to your point of how do you take it from that initial contact through to where they are willing to engage in this kind of relationship. Examples I include in the book vary from some folks that I met at such events like these. And of course, you know, you're targeting people who aren't America's friends. Right. Uh, As a case officer, I'm looking for Russians Chinese, Iranians, North Koreans, and we can go through the assorted list of, of folks who whose interests are, are not necessarily aligned with the United States, and they're not going to be well disposed to having a, necessarily an American friend, particularly one who, if during days under official cover, uh, represents the United States government. Even approaching them in a non-official persona, if it was me as an American, and I can say that I didn't always play an American in some cases or, or be me. And that's about as much as the agency will sure. indulge me to say. I, it's still the same thing where these are people who grew up in societies where their best friend or their relative could be an informant for the local service. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of Russia, think of Iran, think of China, think of North Korea. So they grow up believing in conspiracy because sometimes conspiracies are true where they come from. Yes. And not being able to trust people with what they really feel and what they really think. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing transition. So I speak of one individual and who I call Nick in my book, who right. I was from one of these countries, what we call maybe a criteria country in terms of its relationship with the United States. He had a fabulous story and a story I didn't know much about until I got to meet him. But you know, you use all your skills to try to find a reason for somebody to want to see you. We we train our ops officers, and I use the phrase, be interested and interesting. So you need to come across as someone who's sincerely interested in the person you're engaging. And who doesn't like that? Who doesn't want people to be interested in them and, and let me talk about myself? And they care about that I knit or I collect stamps or I'm a, you know, a hiker or whatever it may be. And then be interesting. What is it about you that will appeal to that person? That Okay, great, we had a great combo, but why should I ever talk to you again? What is it about you? Do you offer me something? Are you just you know witty? Are you fun? Or do you actually have something tangible that you can offer me? Because in some of the countries I've served, you know, being an American and having access variously to magazines, alcohol, videos, whatever it may be, was something that made me interesting to certain people who didn't quite have it as well or couldn't buy some of these things because of the repercussions for them. Yes. Books that would be considered anti-establishment in Russia or China, but they have a fascination for. Yes. So in Nick's case, it, it was even a little bit trickier. Nick was clearly an intel officer for his country, and I was clearly one for mine, and we actually bumped across one another both doing the same thing, trolling an event, mm-hmm. looking as we were as predators, hunting for our prey, our targets. So you ended up hunting each other? And we ended up hunting each other, yeah. And luckily, um, it wasn't just a competition. 
uh, Nick was just not a real happy fellow from his country. Uh, and his story being interesting that he was well served by the state. His dad was a senior official in that country that gave him great privileges and benefits and education and a job. But he had relationship issues with his dad and was a real different guy than his dad. And without, you know, saying daddy issues, because it's so it's kind of cliche, that made for a lot of his drives and his motivations and what mattered to him. And part of getting Nick or getting any other individual to cross that line, there generally has to be some sort of crisis. There has to be some issue. Mm-hmm. It's not like people in some of these countries we pursue make a lot of money. Some of them might, but a lot of them don't. Mm-hmm. It's not just throwing money at them that makes a difference. And, and we say as operations officer, people don't spy for money. People sometimes spy for what money can get for them. Right. You take the advantage of someone who has serious medical issues in the family. It's usually cost as well as access to medical care, tuition for their kids to go to school and, and have opportunities that they won't otherwise have. In Nick's case, it was very much ideological. He mm-hmm. didn't like his government. He didn't like his government's ideology. He felt a slave to it, didn't like his father's role in it. And it really was a matter of trust over time because he knew exactly who he was talking to. But we developed a friendship that was also built on family. He was a guy from a country that at times had a policy of holding family members hostage, that is, letting them go abroad, but not letting their spouses or not letting their kids go abroad. Mm-hmm. So it'd be harder for them to defect or they'd be less inclined to spy. And Nick would come to my house and play on the floor with my kids, you know, with their Tonka trucks and <laughs> watch <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies and, and eat popcorn and, and loved it. So it allowed me to establish the kind of relationship with him and the depth, the really profound depth that he opened up to me. And in time, I to be honest, manipulated this crisis that he had yes. to persuade him that if you're serious, then you've got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And with me and the CIA, that's your way to address what you need, which is to do something about what you don't like at home. Now, in your book, you mention that there are four principal levers to recruit an agent. So in the case of Nick, it was ideology. The other three levers that you mention in the book are money, and you alluded to money in the case of Nick, but in his case, it was actually ideology that brought him over. But then there's the the two other levers are coercion and ego. Can you give us an example of coercion and ego where that came into play to actually bring an agent in? So the acronym to which you refer is called MICE, right? M-I-C, right? It's, it's, it's money and, and ideology and coercion and ego. But it's a Russian tool. Uh-huh. Now, I'm not saying we don't use some of it, because certainly money, ideology, and ego are big. But the Russians and the Chinese, and you know, if you think of a police state, the default for them is coercion, because it's easier. Yes. But it's not really effective. The CIA doesn't really use coercion, not because we're great and ethical and moral. I'd like to think we are somewhat. But it just doesn't work. Do you want to stand behind the intelligence of someone you're blackmailing? Do I want to meet a terrorist who I've blackmailed in the back streets of Beirut or Karachi or Tripoli in whose life I'm putting mine? I would tell you not. But this is usually used on home turf. 
the East Germans were famous for it against East Germans in Germany and, and the Russians. Money, ideology, coercion is compromise. It's what the Russians refer, which are dirty pictures, dirty movies, you know, voice conversations of, of some official talking to their mistress, to their prostitute, to using drugs, to, to stealing or what have you. And that's that kind of coercive approach that particularly is effective for them on their home turf, but against foreign officials who, you know, they catch doing one of these things, who career will be in ruin, whose family will be in disarray if their wrongdoings are revealed. Ego, as I think, a component of a lot of spies, even the patriots with whom I've worked. And I, and I mean that sincerely because Nick was a patriot. He really wanted to change his country. He really wanted to change his government. We have patriots from a lot of these countries, and, and most of them, as opposed to, unfortunately, a lot of the Americans who have spied for the Russians or the Chinese who have largely done it for money, really have done it for ideology. But ego has to be a component. One, you need kind of the ego to, to do this, kind of the cojones to, to do this, mm -hmm. because it's got a lot of risk involved. But we certainly appeal to that ego as well. But it's a two-way, it's a double-edged sword because we've lost agents because of their ego, because they felt, I'll never be caught. I'm Teflon. I'm smarter than the people who would be hunting me. So ego kind of works both ways in espionage. And while it may be a feature that I, as a hunter, as a predator, use to get in the door, it could kind of work against me if I can't get my own agent to heed the security practices I need him or her to, to do in order to stay safe. Mm -hmm. Let's just come back to the new director of the CIA, Director Burns, and the changes that he's bringing about. Of course, we're only one year into his mandate there at the CIA. Can you give us a quick report card as regards the, the reforms that Director Burns is putting into effect? He's doing pretty well. And this is from someone whose book is, is critical of a number of issues as we're discussing tonight in the CIA. But I, I had the good fortune to work with Director Burns when he was in Ambassador Burns 20 years ago in a very sensitive program. And I even found him then to be a very inclusive, I mean, obviously smart, but inclusive leader, very concerned about his people, the workforce, and a listener. And I think being the director of the Central Intelligence Agency that's the key. You've got to be a good listener. You've got to be invested in your workforce. A lot of what you do is providing your workforce the space, the safe space to do their job, which I don't think Gina Haspel did and certainly Mike Pompeo didn't do in terms of what the White House wanted the agency to be and mm -hmm. look like and accomplish. And, and I think we see Ambassador Burns, Director Burns, looking at what are the issues that need reform, that need to be addressed. And from his public declarations, and those are all that I would be willing to speak to, he's looked at personnel and talent and the workforce. He's looked at bringing greater diversity into the agency to take advantage of the strengths that diversity brings America and, and its intelligence service, of advancing people in a more fair, less backdoor, candles, clicks kind of way. Mm -hmm. He's shown a lot of people the door who needed to see the door, who had been around forever and had sort of taken the agencies some of, down some of these darker paths and used very clever ways to kind of keep it from becoming too confrontational. In the case of a number of these 
officers. They had long stayed past their retirement eligibility, and there used to be a formality to get a waiver to stay another year, another year. He suspended the waivers, which was really rather clever. Mm -hmm. He's implementing reforms on how long senior people could be in certain positions so that there's a fair rotation so that more of our people get opportunities because you have had during the years some of these same people being for years and years being the, the chief of a center let's say uh, of a functional issue such as counterterrorism or a geographic area like iran if you would and they would never go which means they grew a really large number of obsequious syncophantic followers who would just say oh whatever you say boss that's brilliant <laughs> we've all yeah. we've all been there in big organizations okay. yes uh, so you know you rotate folks so they have the experience so they can take these jobs and they have to move on after a couple of years so you give someone else an opportunity to do it i don't know everybody's thrilled about how he's handled what we call habana syndrome what the agency has talked about is anomalous health issues He's recently been on record as saying a lot of the cases we looked at were cases where there were unknown uh, medical issues or, or environmental issues, but there are still a number of cases that don't fit that, that are suspicious. So there's been some space daylight between what the CIA said publicly and what a recent commission that uh, the White House asked to take a look and said, no, we see at least 100 cases where we think there's an outside hand, where there's directed energy. But he put the right person on this job. Mm -hmm. The person's undercover, but I can't, so I can't speak to the person's name. But this officer is a really strong officer and has had some of the tougher jobs and has a very open approach to looking at information. So he's moved some of the right people. Dave Marlowe, who is publicly known, he's not undercover these days, He's the CIA's chief of the clandestine service. He's the deputy director for operations. I've worked for Dave, mm -hmm. worked with Dave. He's the right person in that job. Takes his people seriously, treats them well, doesn't play favorites. And if you're a spy, you've got an ego, but you're not going to get over on Dave simply by kissing up to him. Uh, mm -hmm. He's going to put the right people in the right jobs for the right reasons. And he wants a representative workforce. So his, his grades for me are, are good. I mean, it's early. Yeah, obviously, devil's in the details, and I want to see how things go, and I want to make sure he does the job right. He's been traveling a lot, and all directors have done that. I'm wondering, is the White House really taking advantage of his history as a U.S. diplomat, his history of using back channels? And directors of Central Intelligence Agency are important to reach out to their foreign counterparts. He's been doing a lot of that lately, so mm -hmm. I think we'll just need to wait and see if it's too much or just right. But again, my marks so far for him are good. Doug, two years ago, you decided to hang up your hat, bid farewell after a very distinguished 34-year career with the CIA, and you joined Georgetown University as an adjunct professor, the Center for Security Studies. Tell us about Georgetown and the Center for Security Studies. What a privilege it's been to be at Georgetown and clearly a school that would have never looked at me twice or once <laughs> too modest <laughs> too modest speaking uh, to you know to be an undergrad with a great history but what i love about georgetown are the people the students and the faculty you know i spent all these years as a spy as a government official talking to people from those perspectives lines of work and those experiences to be able to talk to students who have such a fresh outlook on the world i mean uh -huh. i'm 
such things all the time. The questions they ask that I won't say, oh, well, we do it this way because that's the way we've always done it. It forces me to explain the logic of things with faculty who are just brilliant and so supportive. They treated me like a family uh-huh. and given me opportunities. Just been a terrific place where I, I think I'm learning and, and getting as as much, if not more, maybe than the students with whom I'm interacting. Congratulations on your assignment there, and it it sounds like a win win both for you professionally and for them to have someone with your breadth and depth of experience in the field. The Middle East Institute. Tell us about that, and what is your role with them? It's a marvelous group of people from such a diverse spectrum of backgrounds, academics, government officials, and not just uh, Americans and from the United States. They are a think tank, essentially, aren't they? And they look at issues primarily affecting the Middle East and South Asia and, and Southwest Asia. And they've given me an opportunity to do research, to speak, to be parts of panels with other really just amazing people, talented folks, and to reach an audience where I could express my thoughts on policy or issues or threats that are are coming up, both in the written form and in the spoken form by participating in some of their events. And it's a place where I learn a great deal. And they, they invite such amazing speakers. They get senior officials from our government and others to speak on top of issues, General McKenzie, you know, Commander CENTCOM has spoken mm-hmm. on issues mm-hmm. ranging across his area responsibilities, such as Afghanistan, Iran, and the like. Brilliant writers that are there who, who know, you know, Syria and Iran inside and out. And, and what I try to do is I try to complement what their great extensive encyclopedic knowledge is with sort of a practical optic on the world I saw when I spied on those countries Uh and I got to know people from those worlds and, you know, we're in their homes and on the streets with them and not just meeting them at embassy cocktail parties, but really where they lived. And I think it offers a a, a useful perspective for those who want to learn and think about what's going on and, and what maybe they can do and what maybe American policy should be towards those areas. Doug, in the remaining few moments of the podcast, do you have a message for our listeners, particularly our, our younger listeners who might be be considering a career in government and might never have considered the CIA? If you were adept at recruiting agents, if you had to wear your recruiter's hat today to recruit a young man or woman who might be listening to this podcast to consider a career in the CIA, what would you say as we come to the, f- the closing minutes of our podcast? I would encourage them to believe that the reality of working in the intelligence business is even better than what they've seen on television and in movies. It's not James Bond and jumping out of airplanes and helicopters at any moment, though some of that, a little bit of that happens, but it's stealing secrets, analyzing intelligence, and making a difference that saves lives, that protects their family, their friends, their fellow country, people from a very complex and dangerous world that an individual, one person can have such outsized impact with a career in intelligence based on the opportunities. One case officer handling our deepest penetration of Russia's Kremlin. One agent who knows about a threat from a terrorist group, the difference that can make. And along with that, my message to your audience would be be savvy consumers of information. Accountability is important, and I, and I think the United States intelligence 
be writ large, needs a degree of transparency. Obviously, not our secrets, and Lord knows not the leakers who get people killed and who make America weaker, but who can give assurance to the American public that we are, we aren't doing what we should be, and where we're not, we're going to clean house about it. And and that's a job that the DNI has. But you know, be savvy. Be interested and challenge your elected representatives to not tell you uh, what are the names of our spies, but can you assure me that the agency and the rest of the IC is on the right course, which is what they're chartered to do? Mm -hmm. Well, Doug, I want to thank you very much for joining us today and sharing with us this incredible encyclopedic knowledge of 34 years and knowledge of a branch of our government that we very rarely hear with so much candor. So I want to thank you for your candor. I certainly want to thank you for sharing your experience with us. And most importantly, where can my listeners buy a copy of your book, The Recruiter? Well, thanks, Jenna. Thanks to your listeners to, to giving me a hearing here. But the book's a lot of fun. It's available by most booksellers, Barnes & Nobles. It's on Amazon. It's in Audible. It's in Kindle. So it's pretty much out there both on the street at bookstores and in most online sellers. And I, and I think you'll get an interesting mix of both some very cool and very real spy stories and some interesting thoughts on where the intelligence community is and maybe where it needs to move. Once again, Doug, thank you so much for joining us today. And on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you very much for your service to our country. Thank you very much, Jim. The pleasure has entirely been mine. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, and subscribe. It's free and easy to do so, and all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also listen to the 241 past episodes. And feel free to rate the show by going to the Review tab on the website. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.